if you take your Bibles, please, we have actually three passages that I will be reading from. The first is in Galatians chapter 5. Actually, that's not the first one we'll read, but doing it in order as found in Scripture. Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, and then Colossians chapter 3. So Galatians 5, Ephesians 4, and Colossians chapter 3. As recently noted, the project of becoming like Christ in our lives is our life's most important task. It makes sense to make use of every resource we can find to help us do it well. What we find in Paul, according to the same author, is that the moral project for a Christian is to die to the old self and rise to new life in Christ. The dying and rising is the rhythm of the life of discipleship, a life devoted to becoming more and more like Christ. So let's begin in Ephesians chapter 4, and we see in verses 22 through 24, Paul writes, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we are to put off the old, the old is to die, and there is to be new life. Then turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. This is a passage uh, that Tess read to us last week in the reading from the New Testament. Beginning in verse number 5 of Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You will notice that Paul refers to the things that we should not do as things. He also refers to them as ways. That is, the way that we used to live. The things we should do, he refers to as virtues. Now consider what Paul writes to the Galatians. Uh, Turn now, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5, to what I think is probably a more familiar passage than what we've just read. Beginning in verse number 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, 
and the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. Idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then it is followed by verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. What I would like to do today is to begin a new series, a series on vices, and possibly we will look at virtues as well, which are the remedies for vices. What I want to do is to lay in today's sermon the foundation for the series that will follow, looking specifically at vices. One of the difficulties we face, or that I face in preparing this, is that we do not find the word vice or the word vices in the Bible. It's just not there. But I am convinced that the concept of vice or vices is found in Scripture. What is a vice? Simply, I will argue, it is a habit or character trait. It's not something that we are born with, such as an extroverted personality, or perhaps a predisposition to a certain health issue like cholesterol. Some people, it's genetic. A vice is not genetic as such. Both vices and virtues are moral qualities, and they are qualities that we can cultivate or break down over time. And we do this by our repeated action. That if we do the same thing over again that is wrong, it becomes a vice. If we do the right thing, it is a virtue. As a result, if we look at the issue of vices, it in fact can be very helpful for us when we think in terms of spiritual growth or spiritual formation. By the way, for some of you, I don't know if you're familiar with the phrase spiritual formation. We hear a lot of people talking about it. It refers to intentional Christian practices that have as its goal... That is, you do these practices because they have the goal of spiritual maturity, of becoming like Christ. And involved in this are things such as prayer, the reading of scripture, fasting, simplicity, solitude, confession, worship, and many more things. One author has observed that the pursuit of righteousness and moral excellence is the primary task not obsession with the sins that so often entangle. See, I agree. I think that we tend to focus on individual acts or thoughts rather than a pattern of actions or thinking, which are vices. As we study the matter of vices and virtues, I think we will have to do so fighting on two fronts, if you wish. The first is on the Christian front. And the Christian front is, I think... We really need to be clear what is the difference between a sin and a vice. Um, And the Lord willing, we will talk about this more in the Sundays to come. But just to look ahead, it's been argued, and I, I think I agree, that sins can be thought of, if you use this analogy, as snapshots. They're photos. It's it's a moment in time. 
Whereas a vice is more of a film, a movie, perhaps an extended scene. It's a collection of moments. It isn't simply one specific moment. We will look at this more in the future, the Lord willing. So, on the one front, we have, as Christians, as we look at vices, to really distinguish between individual sins, which oftentimes become our focus, rather than vices, which are patterns of sinning. The second front is the secular front. So we fight, in a sense, against the church, but then against the world, in which we find in the modern world, the contemporary culture, a tendency to dismiss, to redefine, to psychologize, or to simply trivialize what we are going to call vices. And because we live in this culture, we may find ourselves profoundly influenced by this thinking. Let's get some background first before we look at this uh, in more detail. If the word vices is not found in the Bible, then where did the idea come from and why is it of any significance or importance to us as God's people today? The idea of capital vices or deadly sins, as they're also known, came about in the 4th century and after. It began, we think, in what among people we know as the Desert Fathers. These were hermits who lived in the desert south of Alexandria. They deliberately withdrew from society. And in that I think I have a real quarrel with them, but we'll leave that aside. And they went into the desert. They withdrew into the desert to face temptation head on, to deal with sin as though it were a real enemy. And they wanted to cultivate a contemplative spirit through prayer. And so they gave themselves to prayer. And why go into the desert? Well, they took the analogy of Jesus being in the wilderness during his temptation And so these men came to be known as the Desert Fathers. And over time, based on their experiences, they came up with a list of thoughts or demons, if you wish, that they saw as typically assaulting these Desert Fathers, these monks that were in the wilderness, so to speak. The first list that we know of had eight such things. We now call them vices. They call them uh, thoughts or demons. Gluttony, lust, avarice, sadness, anger, sloth, vainglory, and pride. Now, this list tended to deal with the individual monk or hermit. This guy living out by himself, maybe in a cave, but out in the wilderness. And these were the eight assaulting sins or temptations that would come against him. The second list that we know of is identical to this list, but there's a big difference. And the difference is, it isn't about the individual, it's about the community. And so we find among the Benedictine monks, for example, as they lived in community, that they dealt with these eight vices, um, and they saw them, uh, they, they put them in a different order, but it's still that same eight. And it isn't just what I am fighting as an individual, but what we as a community have to deal with. The third list was created about two centuries later. This is um, from Gregory the Great, 540 to 604. Um, And his list had seven, uh, not eight. Vainglory, envy, sadness, avarice, wrath, lust, gluttony. 
pride was seen as the root of all of these. So in a sense, you still have eight, but they said there are seven vices and pride is the root of all of these things. You'll notice that envy is added and sloth had been taken out. Actually, sloth had been put under the category of sadness. So sadness and sloth were put together and envy is added. In the 13th century, Thomas Aquinas came up with another list. Again, this had seven. Vainglory, envy, sloth, avarice, wrath, lust, and gluttony. And pride, again, is seen as the root of these seven vices. Envy is once again on the list. Sloth has replaced sadness. One of the things, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. I think most today would say that these are the seven vices. If you'd ask most Christians today, pride, envy, sloth, greed, wrath, lust, gluttony. Something is missing, and that is vainglory. Um, and we'll talk about that in this series. I think it's really important. With the rise of the Enlightenment, a very different view of vices and virtues came about. So, for example, David Hume, uh, Hume saw pride as that agreeable impression which arises in the mind when the view either of our virtue, beauty, riches, or power makes us satisfied with ourselves. In other words, for him, pride was sort of a good thing. It's sort of a wonderful thing. And here we come to the second front. The first front is fighting the idea of vices in the church, but now in the world... The dismissing of vices, the redefining, the psychologizing, or the trivializing. Think about this for a moment. This isn't just unbelievers who do this. I've said two fronts, the church and the world, but actually we find oftentimes that the church is over here as well, dismissing or trivializing things that I think are truly important. One pastor wrote about a century ago, on the whole, I should be inclined to say gluttony is a sin which the civilized man has outgrown. And there's, no, there's not much need for referring to it in the pulpit. In other words, gluttony is not really a problem that the church faces today, and so we shouldn't talk about it. In a book entitled Wicked Pleasures, Meditation on the Seven Deadly Sins, the editor questioned, why should God bother to raise a celestial eyebrow about the vices given that the deadly sins barely jiggle the scales of justice. It's just not that important. Because for him, sloth is nothing more than a bloke who can't get out of bed. And lust is nothing more than one too many peaks at a Playboy pictorial. And gluttony, nothing more than scarfing down three extra jelly donuts. And so the vices have been dismissed. They've also been redefined. And oftentimes, vices have been redefined as virtues. And recommended as such. But let's be fair. When they change a vice into a virtue, they're actually talking about something quite different than what was originally intended. Just think a minute. How many adjectives can you think of in our society today that are put in front of pride? You know, some type, a community pride, some, some category of people, pride. So that pride is no longer seen as something that is a vice, but is in fact a virtue. A man named Robert Blackburn has written seven books on the seven deadly sins. And he seeks to, quote, rescue them from the denunciations of old men of the deserts, the desert fathers, 
to deliver them from the pallid and envious confessor and the stocks and pillories of the Puritans to drag it from the category of sin to that of virtue. In other words, what used to be called you know, by these guys out in the desert sin or vices, we should actually see as virtue. Let me quote from his book on lust. Everything is all right. By understanding it for what it is, we can reclaim lust for humanity. We can learn that lust flourishes best when it is unencumbered by bad philosophy and ideology, by falsities, by controls, which prevents its freedom of flow. In other words, vices have been redefined. They've also been psychologized, if you wish. So now gluttony is seen as a quaint name, as sort of an old English word for a variety of eating disorders. And wrath is treatable by going to anger management seminars. Pride is replaced by talk about self-esteem. And lust is oftentimes seen as repressed feelings. One psychologist, in relating how he helped a Catholic patient who was struggling with lust, for her to overcome her feelings about premarital sex, he helped her do that and she had sex and she was much happier. So that lust is bad because it is repression. If it is liberated as Blackburn would have us do, uh, then we will be much better off. And then, let's face it, it's simply trivialized. In fact, when most of us think of vices, I don't know that we necessarily think of sins. And I'm reminded of a dear friend of mine who told me years ago, he said, Damon, um, every vice must be cultivated. You know, whether it's smoking cigars or single malt scotch, you just you don't like it right off the bat. You sort of have to cultivate that vice. That's not what we're talking about. Okay, we're talking about sins, a pattern of sin in our life. But it's become trivialized. So we could spend a lot of time here. I'll just mention one example. In 1987, Harper's Magazine ran a feature, You Can Have It All, Seven Campaigns for Deadly Sin in which uh, Madison Avenue advertising agencies were asked to create a printed ad selling one of the seven vices. For sloth, the tagline read, if the original sin had been sloth, we'd still be in paradise. Um, What we find in the modern world, I would say both in the church and outside the church, is that people neither recognize nor respect the centuries of Christian teaching on the vices. If all we knew about vices came from contemporary sources which oversimplify, stereotype, and scoff, or rationalize them away, um, it would be far too easy for us simply to make fun of the vices, to have parodies of them, rather than to think that For centuries, Christians have given serious moral reflection to the problem of vices. So why should we, here at the Church of Melrose, here in 2015, why should we study the vices? I would argue that both non-believers and believers can benefit from such a study. First of all, whether we recognize it or not, we find a wealth of references to the seven vices in films, books, and the arts. And studying the vices can help us uncover layers of depth and significance in contemporary stories and contemporary films that deal with human weaknesses and temptations, but we don't necessarily see them as vices. 
We don't see a pattern necessarily. I think we tend to psychologize them away. Um, in the movie I think most of you are familiar with, Amadeus, we see vainglory in Salieri in which he wants public recognition and acclaim. We see envy because he envies Mozart's gifts. And he is angry against Mozart and ultimately angry against God for gifting this ridiculous man with all of these abilities. So I think that if we study the vices and then we read contemporary literature, watch films, suddenly I think we begin to see what perhaps even the author or the director could not in fact envision himself or herself and that is that the vices, the patterns of sin lie at the root of these stories. Secondly, if we study the vices, they offer us a framework for explaining and evaluating common cultural practices. So envy, for example, and its Offspring, schadenfreude, joy at another's misfortune, go a long way to explaining the popularity of tabloids that you're assaulted by as you go, as you check out of the grocery store, in which they expose and trumpet the failures of, of celebrities. Reality shows dealing with makeovers are a tribute to the power of vainglory. Don't like the way I look. I want to look different. And advertising industry is driven by this, the image. Action films oftentimes depict the celebration of wrathful revenge in the guise of righteous anger. But the vices are sins. They are patterns of sins. Chaucer told his readers in Canterbury Tales, they are the principal sins and chief sins and the trunk from which branch all others. But if we don't study them, if we don't understand them, I think as God's people we will be in trouble. You see, murder is anger's son, and theft is the daughter of greed. Adultery is the offspring of lust. But if in fact we diminish or dismiss the parents, if you wish, the roots of these sins, then we will have a much weaker view of the power of sin in our life. Third, and perhaps most importantly, why we should study the vices, is that understanding the vices can yield spiritual rewards. Paul told the Ephesians that becoming holy or being sanctified, to use biblical language, means in part putting away vices and putting on virtues. Let me read to you again from Ephesians 4. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. As I quoted earlier, the author has written, the moral project for a Christian is to die to the old self and to rise to a new life in Christ. This dying and rising is the rhythm of a life of discipleship, a life devoted to becoming more and more like Christ. Because the project of becoming like Christ is our life's most important task. It makes sense to make use of every resource we can find to help us do it well. And one of those resources, I'm convinced, is studying the vices. When we recognize our vices for what they are, we can take the first step 
to reforming our habits of turning away from vices and turning toward virtues. And by the way, when we engage in this practice, immediately we are confronted by the fact that we need God's grace every moment of every day. One of the great dangers of vices is that they are subtle and deceptive imitations of what it is that makes us happy. The goal of human happiness. So again, why study the vices? One of the reasons is that the believers in the past who struggled and who learned and taught about the vices developed a sense of community as God's people. God's people seeking to live out what it meant to be a Christian. They identified sin. They struggled against sin. And they saw it not as an individualistic uh, program, uh, psychological self-help, something that they might be engaged in. It was something that was a graced and disciplined formation of the body of believers. It isn't just myself trying to become like Christ. That I should do. But we as a congregation, as a body, should be doing this together. What I hope to do in this series, and it may go longer than I intend, seems to happen from time to time, is I want to examine two of the vices, two of the capital vices or deadly sins, sloth and vainglory, for several reasons. First of all, I think that sloth is really, it's truly misunderstood. Sloth is seen as simply a synonym for laziness, and it is much, much more than that. Vainglory is something that drives much of our contemporary culture. Daniel Borston's definition of celebrity, someone who is well-known for being well-known. And so people want to be well-known, and they don't see, we may not see vainglory as a problem, let alone a vice. After all, in the list of seven vices in the modern world, vainglory has been dropped. It's been replaced by pride, whereas, you know, Gregory and Thomas Aquinas had pride as the root of all these things. People are like, eh, let's just get rid of vainglory and put pride in there. And so seven's a good, good biblical number, and we'll go with that. Um, vainglory is, I think, indeed a deep problem. Another reason for wanting to look at these is that if you talk to a lot of people who have written about the vices, you might make the case that sloth is a problem for young or immature Christians. Or we might say backslidden Christians, that sloth is a problem. And that vainglory is a problem for mature Christians. Um, Augustine, in much of his writing, struggled with vainglory. It's, it's as you grow closer and closer to God, the Father, and as you become more and more like Christ, there is that temptation to say, hey, look at, I'm, I'm doing pretty well here. And you've given in to the vice of vainglory. I tend to think that sloth and vainglory are problems for all Christians, not just, you know, Sloth for the immature and vainglory for the mature. I think they're a problem 
for all of us. And by God's grace, we will look at them. If we want to be like Christ, if we want to put off the old and put on the new, then sloth and vainglory and the other five vices must be dealt with. If this were a paper, at the end of the paper, I have my end notes. And there are several books that have really helped me in uh, developing this series. Two are by a professor of philosophy at Calvin uh, College, Rebecca DeYoung. Uh, had a book that came out six years ago called Glittering Vices, A New Look at the Seven Deadly Sins and the Remedies, and a book that just came out this year called Vainglory, the Forgotten Vice. And then R.J. Snell has a new book called Asadia, which is the word for sloth, and its discontents, I love the subtitle, Metaphysical Boredom in an Empire of Desire. Um, the Lord willing, we will be looking at these. We will be looking first at sloth, and then at vainglory. Let's pray together. Our Father, it seems that oftentimes in our thinking, in our practices, we focus on individual sins, um, which are not unimportant, but we fail to see a pattern. We fail to put on virtue as a, a way of living, a way of acting. We fail to recognize the vices in our lives, ways of living, ways of acting, ways of thinking. We've sort of gotten bogged down in the details. We can't see the forest for the trees. I pray that in the weeks to come as we go through this, you would give us understanding. And that we, not only as individuals, but as a congregation, would come to deal with vices and put them off and put on the virtues. That we would become Christ-like in all that we do. We would not see ourselves merely as individuals, but as a body. And we would see by your grace and your spirit, your work in our lives. I thank you that you brought us together today to worship you. We do pray for Zib and her family at this time of loss, that you would comfort them. And we pray for Zib and her baby as well. You would watch over them. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would go with us as we leave this place. May we, by your grace, be lights in a world of darkness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.